Good morning, everyone, and I wish all of you here this morning a very joyful, blessed, peaceful, and I would say Merry Christmas. I see we have visitors here. Um, it's good to see you here this morning. Travis with his wife Jess are here from Ottawa. Thank you for coming. I'm sure you're coming to celebrate the holidays, and it's good to see you. Uh, we have visitors from Manitoba. I know, remember you. You came for the funeral of your father. Thank you for coming. We welcome you here. And I don't know if I miss anyone else, but if you're a visitor here this morning, we just say thank you for joining us this morning in this time of worship and celebration as we celebrate Christmas Day together. Just also want to make a comment that uh, has been announced the last few Sundays, that there will be a potluck lunch here this noon hour. Anna and I were the pastor couple. We we um, have done this before. In the other church we used to pastor years ago, we would, on Sunday, Christmas Day, we would have a potluck for those who don't have anywhere to go on Sunday, I mean on Christmas Day. Christmas Day can be a very lonely day for some people. And if that's you this morning, you're welcome to come. We brought extra, and so just join us for lunch after the service. Today is the day that we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have been for the last four Sundays talking about the Advent season, and we talked about a lot of things. We talked about the genealogy of Christ, why it was important that his ancestry be traced back to David and back to Abraham. We talked about Mary, chosen to be the mother of Jesus, how as a virgin she would conceive and bear a child. We talked about Joseph, the challenges this posed for Joseph. He, being a righteous man, had a struggle with this. We talked about how Mary, even in spite of all that happened, she focused on the blessing And this morning we want to focus, zero in on the actual event when the baby was born. I don't know if you've ever been to a very big festive occasion or a big celebration when some big top world leader is traveling somewhere and you get to see this person. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that. I have never been to anywhere where there's a world leader and get to maybe shake his hand or get to say hi. I don't know what that's like and I don't know if I really care. But it is fascinating what happens when a big, powerful dignitary comes to town. I mean, they go all out. They, they prepare. They, they, they make it special. For instance, if the Queen of England goes somewhere, there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to be prepared long in advance, and lots of money and lots of energy and lots of resources are put, uh, used and taken up just to get ready for the Queen to show up. I did a bit of research. What actually goes on when some big, powerful man comes to town? Do you know how much it costs to fly the U.S. president and his big um, 747 jumbo? They say it costs $200,000 an hour. Like, it's jaw-dropping. Wow. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm not judging them. I'm just saying, that's a lot of money. That's more than most of us pay for our house. That's how much it costs just for one hour of travel for him. The entourage of people, the preparations that have to be made, the the things that are put into effect just for him to travel. Now we want to, I want to this morning not focus on those kinds of things. I want to focus on what happened when Jesus came. Wasn't even a blip on the radar. Nobody noticed except the ones that the angels told the news to. Jerusalem, the capital city, never a peep. Nobody carried it in headlines. Nothing happened. When Herod finds out later, he has to dig and investigate when this, because it's not in the newspapers, nobody recorded it. 
He has to investigate, and then uh, the wise men come, and they want to check this out. And Oh, it happened, did it? Hmm. Well, the chief priest maybe knows something. But we were told in the Bible that this would happen. But there's an interesting thing about Jesus. The way he came said as much about him as the fact that he came. And we want to look at that a little bit this morning. And one of our struggles that we face is we've heard this story so many times. Most of us can probably repeat it off by heart from memory and yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And so we, we just rattle off this story as if it's old stuff. And it's an old story. It's true, but it's a story that never grows old. It's a new story every single time. So we need to remind ourselves of this. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to spend a few minutes, uh, whatever time we spend, I want to look at the core and hear what happened here. There's some stories that are new no matter how long, how long ago they happened. And it, yeah, let's just read Luke chapter 2 beginning verse 1. I think you guys have it in the PowerPoint there in the back there. Luke chapter 2 beginning verse 1 it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went out to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's put this into a time frame to get some perspective here. The historical setting is extremely important if we're going to get out of the story what the writer intended to bring to us through the story. We must remind ourselves that when Luke wrote his gospel, and this applies to all biblical writers, not just Luke, that Luke wrote for an audience of his time. And when he wrote, he wrote with the assumption in mind that his readers would know what he was talking about without going into a whole lot of detail. He just assumed they knew the background, the context of the environment in which the story took place that he was recording. We know for absolute certain Luke was not writing to LEMC in 2018. He was not doing that. And he had no way of knowing what kind of future cultures would exist after his culture was off the scene of of history. And most certainly, he was not a Western person. He was not a Westernized thinker. The lifestyles, the cultures, the customs, the value systems of that day were totally different than ours. And so for that reason, it's one of my things I always keep pushing. Know your history. Know your history. Study history. Because that's the bedrock on which all of this is built. And so historical background is important here. You see, the people in that day and age did not live in a peaceful culture. It was a very difficult time. They lived under a government they did not want to but had to obey, the Roman government. One writer put it very well. He said, from the Egyptian Sahara to to the Babylonian regions north to in Europe to the Danube River and the Rhine River to Britain and to Spain, that whole vast region, if you can just in your mind picture this map, that whole vast region was under the boot of Rome. Rome was brutal, they were hard, and they were cruel. Nobody was exempt. They had to pay taxes, they had to bow to Rome. Many nations were under their oppression. 
Of course, Rome would, def- would defend and protect them, but only as long as they were on the side of Rome. And one of the things was that was so difficult and so hard was paying taxes. The tax collecting business was big. And so here's what Caesar Augustus does. He sends out his his uh, politicians or his, his army men, and they go out from, from nation to nation to province to province, and you have to count how many people there are so we can raise more taxes. That was, in essence, what was going on here. One writer that I liked the way he wrote it said, in this whole Christmas story, God ordained this, that this event would take place so he would get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem because Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so, in, in essence, Caesar Augustus was nothing more than an errand boy in God's picture. It was Chuck Swindoll who wrote that, and he says, like a little piece of lint on the pages of history. But he had to do his part. Yes, he was a mighty powerful ruler, but in God's scheme of things, just a little blip on the radar. But imagine you living in a country at that time, a country you love, you feel strongly about, and you're being controlled by outside forces against your will. Your, your money's being taken from you at their at their the way they decide, you have no say. And you have no, no recourse. Of course you would wait for a deliverer for, a, for somebody who's going to rescue you. And so there's military bases everywhere. There's soldiers in the country. It's just not a very good experience for them. And so that was the environment. That was the climate in which this happened. And actually it's much, much worse, but I won't go into all the detail. Um, for instance, King Herod. He was a um, king in Jerusalem. He was an Edomite. He was not even a Jew. But there's a whole other story which we won't take time for today. It would take too much time to go into that history. But things were not good. So that's a little bit of the backdrop that historians record which Palestine found itself during the time when Jesus was born. And it says here in these verses that all went to be registered, each to their hometown. So they had no choice. It's Roman law. Whether you want to or not, you've got to make this trip. And they're not reimbursing you for it. You pay this on your own dime. And, and Joseph's destiny, destination and Mary's destination was Bethlehem because that was where they hailed from originally. Their ancestors were from Bethlehem. I've been going through this stuff recently, and I just find this so incredibly fascinating. And it seems every time I go through it, it gets more fascinating than the previous time. In this last week, I listened to a speaker on video. He's, this guy's been passed away now for some years. He's written some books. And the book that he wrote is called Viewing Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. His name is Kenneth Bailey, and I'll quote from him at different points in my sermon this morning. And he talks about this story. And he says, for instance... Family ties are so incredibly powerful in that culture, in that time. And he said, even today, when he wrote this, it's some decades ago now, in some of these Arabic communities, family ties are so incredibly strong. He says, let's just imagine this. Here's Joseph and Mary. They get this command from the authorities. You gotta go to your place of origin and you gotta register. And Rome wants to know how many people they have under their control. And so Joseph packs up takes his betrothed, his, his fiance Mary, and off to Bethlehem they go. It's about an 80-mile trip, but 150 clicks or 160 clicks, maybe not quite sure how long it was, depending on the road they traveled. But they go. And when they get there, what would they have met? Well, let's remember, they were 
in a community where family ties were very important, and, and they may have had relatives there because that's their place of origin. Uh, Joseph, son of David, or Mary, she was uh, in the lineage of David as well. So they would, when they came to Bethlehem, it's very highly possible they were not complete strangers. Sometimes when we hear the Christmas story, it, it somehow seems as if there were strangers in Bethlehem. They would not have been strangers. Or if we go back a little bit, back into Luke chapter, I think it's chapter 1, where the story is where the angel tells Mary that Elizabeth, her older relative, is going to have a baby. And where does Mary go and visit Elizabeth? In the hill country of Judea. I talked about that last Sunday a little bit. So Mary knew the territory. Mary knew the area. So, they, so at least there were some relatives of Mary's there. So this story takes on a bit of a different flavor when we look at it with those lenses. So with that bit of background and that culture and that tradition, we have every reason to believe that Joseph and Mary would not have been, at least not been complete strangers when they came to Bethlehem. It would seem like, given the nature of those people, that there would have been connections in Bethlehem when they got there. Another thing to note is that we're not given the exact time that they were there. Again, we've heard so many stories in a way that it sounds as if Mary and Joseph traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, got there after dark, and it's kind of all just kind of crunch time, and Mary's in labor, and is knocking on doors, and is not getting any answers, or there's no room in the inn, and they end up in a stable with some animals. That's the story that has been spread, and I'm not, I'm not judging that and saying it's all bad, but really, is that what happened? Is that actually what took place? And again, I'm, I'm basing a lot of this on this historian that I've been reading. In fact, this Kenneth Bailey, he writes, he spent 40 years of his life in that area, teaching, studying, and learning those cultures. So, but this story has been brought to us in a way that we see pictures of Joseph knocking on a door, Mary on a donkey, and they get turned away and they end up in a stable. Did it happen that way? Well, let's read, go back to verse 6. It says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. How long was while they were there? As I just mentioned, often when we hear the story told in children's plays, it's played out as if it happened at night. And it might have, we don't know. But that's not the critical part, it's not mentioned. Luke simply says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Any normal, common sense, logical thinking husband would not take his wife on a trip, on a road trip, three-day trip, walking perhaps or riding on a donkey at best, if she's a few days away from, late, from giving birth. Um, if, if it was that way, it's not said, but it would seem logical that he wouldn't do that. But there's, there's a bit more here. If you read some of the other translations, go, the old King James Version, for instance, Luke 2, verse 6 in King James says, And so it was, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. It says the days. We're not sure how many days. Was it one day? Was it two? Or was it a week? We have no idea. The American Standard says in verse 6, it came to pass while they were there, the days were fulfilled that she should be delivered. Now these translations are more word for word, a bit harder to understand sometimes, but again, that's how they write it. What we need to keep in mind, Mary was pregnant, the, the trip was difficult, no doubt, and the time came for her to give birth to her firstborn son. And then in, in verse 7 it says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Again, Middle Eastern culture plays a big role here according to Kenneth's writings. And I want you just pay attention that she it, it does describe what happened. It's, of course, he's born, and then what she does, she wraps him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Okay, now why would that be written? Why would, why would Luke 
choose that detail to put into his gospel when so much other stuff could have been put in as well, but he doesn't. But this is important. So just keep this in the back of your mind. I want you to just um, hold that thought for now because we'll come back to it a little bit later, So, but we'll just go on. But just to say, swaddling cloths are strips of cloth wrapped around an infant to restrain movement and help keep the baby quiet. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And Kenneth also writes that at that time when he wrote this book, in Middle Eastern culture, in some communities, that's still the practice hasn't changed in hundreds, well, actually in 2,000 years. And then we also need to talk about the manger. It says the baby was laid in a manger. Luke doesn't tell us anything about the manger. We see pictures, right? Are those pictures accurate? Well, again, it's important that we understand the culture and the history of this time. And Luke just assumed when he wrote this, everybody that was going to read his book, his version of the gospel, they would understand. He didn't think about 2,000 years ahead. But we live in a different time, we live in a different culture, so let's look back again. Again here, artists have taken liberty with the story, and in Middle Eastern culture, it was different. And Kenneth writes, in the Middle Eastern culture, even during the time of his writing a few decades ago, he said a house in a community like that would normally have been a one-room house, could be a rectangle, could be a square, and one end of the house would be a bit higher than the other. For instance, maybe a couple of feet, and there would be a few steps leading down where they could walk from the higher end to the lower end, so part of the house was a bit lower, part of it was a bit higher. And in the lower part of the house, inside the house, they had some animals, maybe an ox, maybe some sheep, maybe some goats, maybe a cow. And in the higher end of the house, that's where they would eat and live and have their, the family would, would reside. But the area where the cattle would feed, that was just on the edge where it went from the top to the lower part. And there was a hollowed out area where it was, you could call it a crib, you could call it a, um, a manger, you could call it a feeding place for cattle. That's where the cattle would reach over with their head and just eat from there. And that's what the manger was. And he has a diagram in his book about that. And he said, that is still to this day, in some parts of the Mediterranean Middle East, that's still to this day, some of the houses are still like that. And that was the manger where most likely Jesus would have been laid. That would have been the place where he would have slept. But it says another thing. It says, there, because there was no room in the inn. Okay, what's that all about? What's, what's with the inn? Luke mentions there's no room in the inn. What does he mean? Again here, it's important that we study culture. And this is why it's important that some of us actually study theology. Study the original languages. I never did. But study Hebrew, study Greek. Some of you young guys going to Bible school, I'm so happy for you. Study these original languages because it comes into play here. But what does this mean about the inn? Again, Kenneth writes, he says, in the Greek, the word inn simply has this word. He says, kataluma. There was no room in the kataluma. That's all it says. That's why he was in the crib. But what does that mean? Luke says, that word is only used twice in Luke's gospel. And it's only used for a specific purpose. He says, the word in is not the same word in as he uses in the story when he talks about the Good Samaritan. When Luke talks about the Good Samaritan, you know the story. A man goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho, gets fallen, gets um, beaten up by thieves, laying half dead. A Samaritan comes by, picks him up, brings him to an inn. And there the word in is something different. The word in means a place to sleep for anybody who wants to come and sleep. A commercial place to stay for the night. And the word that Luke uses there, and I'm not sure if I pronounce it correctly, but pandiochan. 
Pandiochian, something like that. I might be not pronouncing it right, but it's different than Cataluma. So you wonder, what's the deal with all of this? It's simply this. The reason why Luke writes the, Luke writes the story the way he does, he says there was no room in the inn, or he says there was no room in the Cataluma, it simply means a guest room. That's all it means. The guest room was full. They had no room. So this house apparently had another room to it, which was already taken up. So Jesus, his mom and dad, couldn't be there because there was no room. So just, and then when he uses the word Cataluma, the, the other place, that's where Jesus goes upstairs into a room, upper room, and eats the Passover meal with his disciples. There that same word Cataluma again is used because it's a guest room. So here's Mary and Joseph in a home. They've been taken in by a family or a household, perhaps relatives, we will never know. And the guest room is full. There's no room in the inn of the Cataluma. There's no room there. And there's other people in the house. So now it's a crowded place. But they have room there. And Jesus is born. Wraps him up, the little baby, puts him in the place where the cattle are eating, regardless of how you view the story, but it's a place in the manger, and there he is. If that was it, that was it. That would be it. But it's not. It's, it, the, the story becomes more fascinating. The story gets more interesting. So Luke tells us that the news of the baby is brought to some shepherds in the field at night. Let's continue reading verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Notice there it is again. And suddenly there was the angel of a, the angel. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels, then the angels, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Again, Kenneth mentions one thing to notice about Jesus in the Gospels was the common people welcomed him. And if you read Luke 15 verse 1, it says, And he Ate with tax collectors. Those detested guys who were working for the Romans. We already are overtaxed. These guys work for them yet. So he ate with those types of people. You eat with the enemy. That, they had a real issue with that when Jesus did that. And the sinners, those who didn't live clean moral lives. He eats with them. He shouldn't do that in their view. And so they had a real problem with him. Jesus comes out as a kind of an all-around loving person. That's all he is. And as a side, I just want to remember, mention this here. This really got Jesus into a whole bunch of trouble later on, and today's not a sermon about his crucifixion, his death, but really what it comes down to is because he lived the way he did, and he came the way he came, the top leaders in the country couldn't stand him. The religious leaders just had to get rid of him. And again, Kenneth mentions that these shepherds, as Jay Kloss mentioned in the, in the worship, they were a unique group of people. And why does Luke mention shepherds? Because shepherds were the lowest of the low. They were even considered unclean writes Kenneth Bailey. It's not exactly why shepherding had become such a detested or a low position, especially if you think of Psalm chapter 23, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, and so on. What had happened, what had taken place, that the Jews in Jesus' day had come to view shepherds as such low people? What had taken place? There's a number of things that could have happened, but one thing is that Jewish men, Jewish fathers, they would teach their boys, don't become a shepherd. 
Don't become a shepherd. Now, you can just think for a second, what would it be in your mind that you would tell your boys, don't, you can become this and this, but don't become that. And that was one thing. Don't become a shepherd. That's what Jewish fathers would tell their boys. Don't become a shepherd. Because that's kind of the lowest of the low. I don't know if we have an equivalent in our society today. It was low paying. It was, you didn't trust shepherd's words necessarily. and It's just a bad trade. What had happened? One of the things that Bailey mentions is this. The Jewish religious leaders, they had made for themselves a very rigid structure of traditions and man-made rules that you had to very precisely and very accurately follow, or you're just not a good Jew. And so, for instance, let's say you're a shepherd. Your sheep are grazing, and all of a sudden your sheep wanders off to the neighbor's pasture or field or whatever that may be, and starts nibbling on those plants. By law, you are now responsible for the damage your sheep caused. And if you're a good Jew, you will repent or you will compensate the neighbor for the loss he has incurred because of your sheep going onto his land. In other words, you had to repent of what had happened, and so you would have to now go and make things right. But the problem was, how do you figure out how much your sheep ate? How do you figure out how much you owe your neighbor? It gets very complicated, very tricky, and just very unwieldy altogether. And so, just better not be a shepherd. You don't have that mess. And that's just one thing. There's maybe others, but there's, there's, there, that would be one thing. So shepherds just didn't have a very good reputation. But let's look again at the story. Who got the news of the birth of Jesus? Well, there's the shepherds and the wise men, but for this morning's sermon, we'll just focus on the, on the shepherds. We'll leave the wise men for another sermon some other Christmas season. The shepherds were the lowest of the low, and it's a powerful message that uh, the message came to them. And they're afraid, rightly so. They're in the fields, it's nighttime, and suddenly this bright light comes up around them, and they're scared. Angel tells them, don't be afraid, and the angel tells them what has happened. There's another piece of information that we want to pay attention to here. Remember before we said, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. What if the angel just said, okay, the king of the Jew, king has been born, the Messiah has been born, he's in Bethlehem, you'll find him there. What would they have thought? Oh, a king has been born. Oh yeah, okay, cool. And they would have kept on staying with the sheep. They wouldn't have gone anywhere. They would not have gone to visit. Why not? Because shepherds would never dare go and visit a king because they're the opposite of the spectrum. But as soon as the angel says, and you'll find him lying in a manger, ah, that they understood, that they got. Yeah, manger, okay, that's poverty, that's poor folks, that's us, that's we, we get it. They understood. You find him wrapped in in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. If he had just said, the king of the Jews has been born and left it at that, Kenneth writes, they would probably not have gone. So he gives them that sign and... And this is the picture they get. They instantly knew. Think of it this way. Imagine a very important dignitary, a very important person coming to our town and wants to visit us. We have this image in our mind of some fancy motorcade, an entourage of people, lots of security, and so on. And yeah, I probably won't get to see him. It won't work anyway. But then they say, and by the way, he's driving a Toyota Corolla. Ah, that I get. That's what I drive. Or maybe a Cavalier. Then all of a sudden it clicks. Oh, if he's coming with that, okay, yeah, maybe. Where's is, where is he at? I want to... Who's driving this? Or maybe he's pedaling on a bicycle. You'll see him in, at the Walmart parking lot. All of a sudden it clicks. It lowers, it lowers the guard. It makes us feel more free. And all of a sudden we feel more, oh yeah, okay, maybe I have a... Maybe I can see him too. 
That is a little bit the word picture that um, Luke is trying to put out when the angels come and tell the shepherds, here's the baby and this is what you'll find. It kind of just breaks down the barriers, it breaks down the walls, and it just opens it up. The shepherds, they go. And I like the way it says, um, and by the way, there's another little piece here that um, it says the angel, there's a whole heavenly host and we sing, we sing that they sing. Well, did they sing? Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. It's not a big deal. But it says they were praising God. Maybe it was singing, maybe it wasn't. We don't know. We won't make much out of that. But anyway, so the shepherds, they're excited. Let's continue reading Luke chapter 2, verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, just like they were told. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondering, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. It's important that we balance things. Some writers have mentioned, and Kenneth talks about this as well, people view this as kind of a poverty-stricken, destitute, beyond maybe measure, he says, wait a minute. If the shepherds come and they see this and they rejoice and they're happy and they spread this good news, was it that bad of a place? No. It wasn't wealthy, but neither was it a place that where people would say, okay, this is horrifying. This is terrible. Shepherds of all people would have been the first to say, you know what, that guy back there, he's not being treated right. That little baby, he should be treated better. They would have been the first to say stuff like that. But no, they're happy. They're excited. They're jubilant what's going on here. And so it was a very average, ordinary situation into which Jesus came. What we can learn from the story is Jesus came simple, humble, average, ordinary. He fits. He fits. He fits into your heart and mine. Oh, I don't know about me. Yeah, he does. It's okay. The people in the neighborhood they hear, the shepherds are happy. We find no reason to imagine a scene that was destitute or desperate. Yeah, Joseph and Mary were poor because we know there's much other stuff I could talk about there offering in the temple. I don't have time for that this morning, but yes, they were poor folk, but it was a good event. It was a miraculous event, but in a very ordinary setting. So here's what I want to leave us with this morning as we wrap up the story. The story is alive. It is well. It is for you and me today. Maybe your world is not looking good. It won't be worse than the Romans were treating people. Or the way Herod was treating his subjects. Don't have time for that this morning, but it was brutal. Herod killed some of his own family members. And the good thing is we don't have to wait till our life measures up, lines up, and fits. No, it fits today. You and I can have this peace, this joy in our heart now. When he was sent as a baby, he was sent as a dependent baby. Like all little babies are born. He needed them, the care of a mother, the attention of a, of a, of a home. And that baby can be part of your life today. 
Yeah, of course, we know Jesus grew up and he taught the people and died for the sins of the human race, rose from the dead, and we can have salvation in Christ. We know all that. But this was a very key part. He first had to come before he could grow up and die. And so I just want to bless us this morning, bless you this morning, and encourage you, relax, rest, it's okay. Allow the Spirit of God to work in you the peace and the joy he has for your soul, however troubled or encouraged you may be. Jesus came to give, to receive, and to serve. In our young married life as a couple, my wife and I, when we were called into ministry, we really struggled. How do we do this, this thing called serving? How do we do this? And we had this this unreasonable and I would say today maybe foolish idea of having to meet people's expectations. And thinking, what will people think? What will they say? And that was kind of the basis on which we did a lot of ministry. Bad idea. Don't do that. Just be who you are. If God can use shepherds, the lowliest of the low, the most despised occupation that those guys had, use those people to use, use those people to, to spread his message, he can use me and you. He used wise men as well, so I want to be careful there, but he used wise men as well. But he used, from one end of the spectrum to the other, he uses them all. So my wife and I had to learn, it's okay where we are. It's all right. And so, over time, we have felt that we have grown in this. Just serve with what you have, with who you are. Mary and Joseph provided the home. Mary was the mother. The shepherds were the news media. They were the ones who spread the story. Maybe you feel like you don't fit. You don't measure up. It doesn't cost no $200,000 to go visit Jesus, to make him part of your life. Right here, right now, you can do this. You can have that Christmas story become a true reality in your heart today. Open your life to him. And we do that very simply. We just receive him in faith. We repent of our sin, receive him in faith, ask him to come into our lives and take control, and he will do that. And then we go just loving each other, blessing each other, caring for each other, living out this love that he came to give. And invite others to join as well. So this morning, as we close our service this morning, I'd just like to ask you, is Jesus part of your life? Have you welcomed him? Or are you going to when and if and after? Maybe when after I get all these what what ifs and buts and so on. Then I will. No. Can you do it today? He's not waiting till you get better. He wants it now. You don't have to wait till it gets better. You can do it now. If he can use the shepherds, he can use any one of us. Let us bow for prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the story of the birth of Christ. You came to earth, Lord Jesus, to... Bring hope, life, peace, and joy in a very difficult and a corrupt and unsafe environment. And you sent a baby. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you for what you did. Coming as a baby to bring all these good gifts. The gifts of love and hope and peace. And this Christmas season, let it be again anew in our own hearts. Lord, we don't know how many people in this world are struggling. We just know many do. We know even here in our own midst, people are dealing with loss and grief and sorrow and pain. But even that, you come to heal 
you come to bring peace in those circumstances. And so we just pray that this morning, may you be in our hearts today. And help us, Lord Jesus, as your servants, as your children, to spread that good news by the way we live, by the way we fellowship, and the way we care for one another. In your holy name we pray.